Welcome to the Sorority Nutritionist Podcast. I'm your host, registered dietitian and weight loss BFF, Lauren Hubert. Each week, we are changing the narrative that women can be hot and successful at the same damn time and do it in a healthy way. Sexy freaking fit babes. We are here with the first male guest to ever come on the podcast, someone who has massively shaped my career more than probably he even knows. Um, We are here with Alan Aragon. So without further ado, welcome, Alan. Thank you so much for having me on, Lauren. It is so great to be here. It is so awesome. So I want it in your words, not mine. Who is Alan Aragon for someone who is about to listen to this episode and has no idea about dietitians and personal training and all the things? Who's Alan Aragon? I guess if I were to just drop the humility thing. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be humble. (laughs) Okay. Well, see, the thing is, I... It always sounds like I'm bragging when I say this, but I'm one of the forefathers of the evidence-based movement in the fitness industry. So I I would like to think that I was one of the main guys who set the standards for being science-based for for people in the fitness space to strive to be evidence-based, which is the combination of a research basis with uh, what we observe in the field, because research is always going to be on the march forward, trying to cover ground that we haven't charted yet. And there's always going to be these vast gray areas of, of the unknown. And so, you know, what we want to try to do is be evidence-based by referring to what has been demonstrated objectively in the scientific literature, but fill in the gaps with um, what we see in practice. So that's kind of the whole thing that the evidence-based practice thing is sort of bridging the gap between the trenches and the the research lab, so to speak. So, yes, I mean, there's many hats to Alan Aragon, right? But, you know, it's, it's so incredible because for many listeners, Alan is like, one of the, like the founding people of if it fits your macros. Right. And I know we probably get asked this question all the time, but I think what's so awesome about what you've been able to do in the fitness space is yes, we have all of this science, right? Smart, educated. We understand the research, but it's also the realistic part to all of the advice that you put on the internet and all of kind of how we interpret the research and then apply it to real coaching scenarios. And I feel like in the fitness space, there's a big disconnect between knowing a lot but actually coaching people and realizing, okay, clients don't need to understand gluconeogenesis and all of these fancy terms that many listeners on the show right now might not even know what that means, where, mm. you know, we can understand the science as professionals, but also really relate it to real life, working mom, very busy, you know, doing a lot of stuff right now. So talk us through when you first kind of started your career to like the, if it fits your macros that coming mm. to be like, how did, if it fits your macros came to be? Yeah, yeah. So if your listeners are familiar with the the if it fits your macros thing, they probably have heard it secondhand filtered through uh, the ether, (laughs) filtered through the, 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 the online universe as a diet where anything goes, you can eat whatever the heck you want, as long as it fits your macronutrient targets, right? As long as it fits your macros, you can make your diet from, uh, Oh, who knows, you know, pop tarts and whey protein. Right. So oh that's God, the that horrible combo. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the impression that a lot of people have of, of if it fits your macros and 
it was never intended to morph into that. So the way that it started was about um, a little over a decade ago. So right around 2009 or so. Um, I was one of the moderators on the bodybuilding.com message boards and, and me and a couple of the other moderators and a couple of the, the veterans on the message boards. And this was before Facebook and Instagram were really kind of a big thing. Well, now it's TikTok, so I'm I'm behind. Oh. I'm not on, I'm not on TikTok yet. So Alan, I'm, we need I'm, you on TikTok. <laughs> I, I'm uh, I'm working up the nerve, so I'm working up I the nerve it. to do it. And and I, I always tell people I'm not cute enough for TikTok yet, so I'm trying to get cute for TikTok. So, um, <laughs> so so yes, this was in in about 2009 on the Bodybuilding.com message boards when we used to get dozens of questions from from new forum members asking if I can have X, Y, or Z food while I am cutting. So while I'm dieting, can I have milk? While I'm dieting, can I have white potatoes instead of sweet potatoes? While I'm dieting, can I have whole eggs instead of egg, uh, instead of egg whites? And the answer would always be, if it fits your macronutrient targets, then go ahead and have that food. And so if you can imagine, can I have cheese during my cut? Can I have pineapples during my cut? It was just these, the quest, these questions would fill the message boards to the point where the rest of the admins and myself, we got kind of cut frustrated. And so we turned our answer of, if it fits your macronutrient targets, go ahead and have that food. We just literally pulled kind of a cheeky maneuver which isn't the kindest or sensitive, most sensitive thing to do, but we just wrote I I F Y M. <laughs> Look it up. Because <laughs> we just it's got and so to the point of you know it, it's funny, especially as like a, a professional, like getting asked so many questions. Where to a mm. client, like they're just trying to find the answer, but to you, you're like well, isn't it so obvious, right? And I think that's why <laughs> that has stuck. I mean, when you look, if it fits your macros on the internet, there's probably billions of photos and things that are related to it now. How does it feel like many years later, looking back at what started from then to kind of how it's evolved now? Like, what are your thoughts and perceptions on like how that has evolved and changed this whole entire movement? Yeah, yeah. I Gosh, you know, Lauren, it's all wrong. <laughs> It's all wrong on a couple different levels because IIFYM was just literally an acronym for an answer to just repeated questions on the message board. It was like a cheeky acronym that we came up with. And it wasn't meant to convey the message that you can eat whatever the heck you want as long as it fits your macros in, in, the, in the entire diet. You know, we were basically saying you can fit whatever food you want to fit into the context of a healthy diet, mm. you know? And, and so that's a whole lot different than saying you can eat whatever the heck you want, unless, as long as it fits your macros. So the concept of discretionary calories, which, you know, dietetics curriculum students uh, have grown up to, uh, learn very well uh, is this small margin of, of foods that are basically whatever you want, you know, it's sort of the YOLO foods, the, uh, 
We call them fun foods over here, fun, right? Like fun, the, foods. fun foods into your calorie budget. I often say that to clients, but mm. I love your definition of like the real, if it fits your macros, like how that should be used yeah. because it's in the context of a healthy diet. It's not saying, mm. okay, we don't give a F what you eat. Like we don't care about the quality of your food and how much protein you're having. Even it's finding that and striking that balance really at its core is what I'm hearing. That's exactly right. That's really the, the distinguishing element. And that's really what kind of gets lost and what got lost in the, the whole IIFYM thing. Uh, and I see how that happened. And I understand how kind of liberating it was for people to eat a crappy diet, but still hit their uh, body weight or body composition goals, you know, but um, it's just not a, it's just not necessarily a sustainable thing in the long term. It's just not optimal for health if you don't care about diet quality and, and food selection of the majority of your diet, you know? So if like 10 to 20% of your diet is coming from desserts and, and, and alcoholic beverages and deep fried foods and stuff like that, then you can still, as long as the other 80 to 90% of the diet is coming from wholesome stuff, then, Hey, you're, you're, you're fine. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that is where the whole IFYM thing went wrong. And then the other area that IIFYM went wrong is people interpreting or, or conflating the terms IIFYM with flexible dieting. Mm. Uh, and then they, they went ahead and this evolved into another conflation of terms where people think that flexible dieting is counting macros. Yeah. And I say this all the time, calorie tracking, is not a diet. A calorie deficit is not a diet. And I kind of think that's what you're getting at here. And I want you to explain the, if it fits your macros being different than flexible dieting. But mm. it, what I'm hearing is like, people are looking for a diet or a quick fix. And it's not like actually understanding that we're talking about patterns and behaviors, right? Yeah, that's right. That, that's exactly right. So flexible dieting is not a specific dietary approach. Flexible dieting is a, a cognitive approach. It's, it's a mindset. So with, with flexible dieting, you have the, well, flexibility to individualize your approach to the diet. Some people prefer a little bit more rigidity and a little bit more um, quantification of their intake, whereas others prefer a more qualitative approach. Um, they prefer a more habits-based approach, um, a little more free flow in, in how they approach their diets. And so the whole umbrella of flexible dieting encompasses all the approaches, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, some people prefer uh, more of a script. Others prefer more of a set of habits that they want to develop that are more qualitative. And, and so flexible dieting is flexibility of the approach. It's not hundred grams of protein, 200 grams of carbohydrate, 50 grams of carbs a day, put it into an app, you know, and plug your numbers into an app every day. That's not flexible dieting. Sure. That's one of the approaches. Um, I would but, consider it like a tool, even like right. knowing your macros and using an app is a tool, just like looking at a hunger fullness scale and mm -hmm. applying that as a tool into your lifestyle. Right. And I think right. It like, it literally makes my blood boil when people think like tracking your macros is the end all be all for <laughs> weight loss and yeah. body composition change. Cause it's like, you can hit your macros, but like, 
do you also have a good relationship to food? Like, do you understand what is going to work for you and your lifestyle for mm -hmm. someone who has a history of disordered eating, maybe, you know, tracking how many grams of carbs you had at breakfast, isn't what you need to be doing right now. And maybe it's a little bit more flexibility. So with this whole flexible dieting piece, mm -hmm. how did you get to the place of being so passionate about flexible, flexible dieting as a topic in nutrition? Um, it's because the, the research in the, in the nineties, uh, on flexible dieting, it really, the findings were very durable and they they endured the, the decades. So basically flexible dieting is the antithesis of all or nothing thinking as far as the approach to the diet. So if you look at foods in a strictly black and white way, then you end up, um, fostering a potentially pathological relationship with, with foods and with, with your diet in general, if you're looking at certain foods as good and certain foods as evil, and you want to avoid certain foods at all costs. Yeah. Um, and you have this narrow list of allowed foods and, you know, while that stuff may work, uh, it's the long-term sustainability that's questionable. It's whether or not you can sustain a healthy psychological state or relationship with, with your diet in the long term, that's put into question when you, you know, foster th this dichotomous thinking, this dichotomous way to approach foods. And so flexible dieting is, it, it sort of sends the message that you don't always have to be all or nothing. You didn't totally blow it. If you went over five grams on, on, on your fat and carb allotments. <laughs> um, and there are certain foods that yes, there, they are more nutrient dense and they're more conducive to helping you control appetite. Uh, however, there is still room for foods that are not necessarily the stereotypical in quotes, uh, clean and healthy and wholesome foods. So flexible dieting allows for sort of a respite of, um, sanity as you trudge throughout, uh, the decades of your life. You know, a lot of people think in terms of, okay, next, uh, I'm going to look great next summer. They should really think in terms of how, how am I going to manage and, and navigate my journey for the next few decades? Absolutely. Now, wait, this is such a perfect segue because I want to talk about one of your most recent Instagram posts. So he recently had an Instagram post. And it's so funny. I'm telling you what your Instagram post was, Alan. It's okay. I, I need that at this point. It's all a blur. <laughs> I love it's it. All a blur. Um, so you talked about maintaining better shape in your fifties versus your thirties and how that was a big goal for you. And then now it's like, okay, you crushed that goal. Um, you want to be even better in your, from your twenties and have even a better fitness and physique and, you know, health and everything in between. So, you know, as part of your Instagram post, you actually said this and I actually want to read it. What bugs me are programs that make big promises while claiming they require very small time commitments to training programs marketed to out of shape desk jockeys and soccer moms and dads that have claimed that training twice a week for just 15 minutes. I'm looking at my Peloton bike right next door because they have a lot of those, um, is, and that being sufficient. The big question is sufficient for what goal and what population I read this and I was like, this is such an important point to talk about when it comes to health and goals and meeting people with where they're at. Now I try to be the type of coach and dietitian that meets people with where they're at. You know, not everyone, you know, a client with three kids run at a soccer practice, no time in her day, just has a newborn under one. Like that person's going to be different versus someone who's 25 and has a lot of time on their hands. So talk to us about that work that you have to put in and 
how to kind of explain these nuances to nutrition and, and fitness where the amount of time sometimes has to be more for some people, but how do we kind of manage that in, if that makes sense? Talk to us a little bit more about this. Yeah. So I guess we can start with looking at the full range of goals or the continuum of goals. Like mm -hmm. on one side of the continuum, we have individuals with obesity and individuals with severe obesity uh, who are just, they've just been sedentary for a number of years and sometimes decades. And so with those populations, the primary goal is going to be to develop a new routine, get out of those habits and get into a better state of health. And so that would involve doing a stepwise progression of increasing physical activity kind of by, by any means that's realistic. Oh yeah. And so if that honestly means 10 minutes, three times a week, great. You know, we'll start there. Now, if we shoot over to the other side of the continuum and we're looking at, uh, you know, bros like you and me. <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> me working at just 15 minutes a day, I think I get us on enough. I can't get out my energy. <laughs> you know, we look at bros who are flexing in the mirror between sets like you and me. It's a different game with, with different goals. Yeah. So um, on this side of the continuum, we're looking more at fine tuning. Um, we're looking more at uh, how to optimize and, and, and how to shoot for these uh, body composition goals and or performance goals that are just be beyond the average. And, and so with this side of the continuum, the time commitment minimums are, are many, many times higher than, than the uh, 10 minutes a week, three times a week. So um, just looking at what it takes and the kind of exercise volume that's required to not, you know, not get it into the envelope, but push the envelope. Mm -hmm. Then we're looking more along the lines of several hours a week, you know, sev several sessions a week that may take as little as 30 minutes or as much as 90 minutes. Uh, if you're a competitive athlete in uh, various sports that require um, a lot of volume, like you're trying to build endurance. And it's, it's not uncommon for competitive athletes at, at the uh, highest levels of endurance to be going two to four hours <laughs> of most days of the week. So there is that extreme side of the continuum. So um, I personally fall into the kind of the wannabe athlete side of things. Um, like a lot of, uh, a lot, like a lot of middle-aged parents, they want to sort of recapture Recapture the glory. <laughs> oh yeah, recapture the glory days. I mean, I'm not in. I'm I'm still in my 20s, almost turned 30 soon. But that's for another yeah, yeah. But it's funny, even like I'm I'm watching actually the Tom Brady docu series, and I'm just like, mm. like I want to go back to playing soccer and like being really competitive. Like I super miss that, and I think you know fitness comes in ebbs and flows. But I loved that post so much because I think you know I'm always a believer in doing the least amount of work. Like, do not complicate this shit, but you know, you have to do put in the work, right? Like it has to happen, but how can we get the most results with the littlest amount of work? Yeah. But I think there's yeah. a point where it's like, you need to up level. And I find that really mm -hmm. hard for the average person trying to tone up, lose body fat, change their body composition, like when to up level. So really in your experience, coaching and the research, how can people know when it's time to up level and be in the place where it's like, no, like that 15 minute workout, you know, you've reached that threshold. Now it's time to up level and push more. Talk to us a little bit about that. You know, that's a great question. 
And um, maybe I can start by, uh, by, by sort of bottom lining the, the range that I, I see most commonly just observationally. So, so time commitments for folks who are not competitive athletes and who are not in the extreme end of just getting off the couch and just beginning to uh, get in better shape or alleviate a state of, of obesity. Um, sort of the people in the middle of the range, then you're, you're essentially looking at a minimum commitment of about three hours a week total, whatever your, your formal exercise is, mm-hmm. and all the way up to uh, six-ish hours a week. So it's about three to six-ish hours a week. And so if you're making progress uh, below three hours a week with, with a total of, of cardio and resistance training, um, then that's great. You're probably, your goals are probably not very extreme and they're probably more oriented towards weight loss and fat loss. But as you start, as your goals start morphing into wanting to gain more muscle or wanting to gain uh, better fitness or better endurance or better performance. Which is different ladies that are listening to this, by the way, being losing body fat is different than like being fit, which is a whole different conversation. (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. It is. And so that's when you start sort of marching sort of from three hours a week. And once that plateaus, well, then we have to start inching up and typically uh, working people or even, you know, full-time students, uh, they, they typically don't need to commit more than roughly six-ish hours a week just to kind of be fit and push the limits of, uh, I guess, the higher end of non-competitive, non-elite uh, fitness. I love it. Yeah. And it obviously it's so person to person dependent on people's situations, Mm -hmm. the training status coming into it. Right. You know, it's always, whenever clients come and I'm sure you you feel the same way, like when someone's like not trained, I'm like, well, this is like awesome. Like you're going to be able to lose body fat, build muscle. Like it's going to be a lot easier versus someone who's like, you know, more trained, but an athlete for a long time, like trying to push that limit. I want to talk about like specifics with numbers. We get so many questions about protein targets and strength training. Let's first start with strength training. And then we talk about protein targets and all of that fun jazz that I know is like everything that you do in your wheelhouse. Um, when it comes to strength training, especially for women and even men, when it comes to wanting to lose body fat and kind of keep or or even build muscle, right. Depending on their training status, Mm -hmm. talk to us about times reps, like, you know, for the average person, right. It might be different depending on people's goals and, you know, their lifestyle. Right. But for the average person, what would you say as an answer to that? Like rough ideas of rep ranges and progression mm-hmm. and all of that. Okay. So minimum effective dose for uh, maintaining muscle is, is a different objective than let's say just trying to push growth. So uh, minimum effective dose for maintenance can be as little as three to five sets a week. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're on a, let's say you're on a week vacation, or you're stuck in uh, a country or a, an environment where you just really don't have the opportunities to, to work out much. If you get those three to five sets in per week while you're there, while you're on that trip, then you're going to maintain your, your strength and, and, and a large part of your fitness. However, if we're looking at forcing new growth, for, forcing gains in muscle, then you really have to start looking at a rough range of five to 10 sets. So work sets, not the warm-up sets, but the, yeah. you know, higher effort sets, um, per muscle group per week. So that would be the range. That would be the volume five to 10 sets per week. And as people, 
advance in their goals and and some people do want to get into a little bit more of the showy uh stuff a little bit more of the higher end stuff looking a little bit more like uh the cover models without necessarily the extra enhancement uh pharmacologically <laughs> and, and photoshop right filters um then people can start looking in the 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week range as far as volume set volume goes so you have this bracket that that's suitable for the majority of the population seeking uh, general fitness and, and seeking certain aesthetic goals of five to 10 sets per muscle group per week. You're, you're in the right zone there. That's for most people. And then you have kind of this higher end of goals of pushing the envelope where it's 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. Uh, and so that, that's with training volume. As far as uh, repetitions go, you know, there, there is a wide range of flexibility of, of what's effective for the goal of either gaining or maintaining muscle. And I'm talking anywhere from as low as the three to six range to as high as like, you know, 15 to 20 reps. Once you start exceeding 25, 30 reps, then the time efficiency of, of the training bout really starts taking a hit. So the, as far as repetitions go, and people have their personal preferences with this, but if the trainee spends the majority of time in, let's say the eight to 12, and some people would cite six to 12 range, then they're kind of in that sweet spot that stimulates a combination of, of, of strength and hypertrophy that's sufficient to push the hypertrophy adaptations forward. So um, that would be kind of the sweet spot range. And now if you go below six, that's, that's great. And that's fine. You can still, um, stimulate hypertrophy, but then you're starting to kind of challenge the, the tensile strength of the, of the tissues. And you start courting a little bit more risk, a little bit more injury risk there. And if you are constantly, let's say doing above 12, 12 reps, say 12, all the way to 20, um, then you're getting a little bit further away from your chances of maximizing the uh, maximal strength adaptations too. So what some advanced people will do is spend a short amount of time in rep ranges below six, and then the majority of time in their in rep ranges from six to 12, and then another minority or a short amount of time cycling into the uh, above 12, all the way up to 20, even, in, even sometimes more. So you cycle through the entire range of set zones. Um, if you want to kind of look at more advanced uh, paradigms for driving hypertrophy, but it's really and a six to 12, the majority of the time, that would be the best for hypertrophy. And once again, circling back to the volume thing, five to 10 sets per muscle group per week for most people. And then more advanced guys can push the envelope 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. And as far as training frequency of the muscles per week, um, a lot of interesting work has been done by uh, my colleague and friend Brad Schoenfeld and, and his guys. I'm literally thinking of Brad with um, the, the high rep ranges. I always think of him. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And, and they, they did some really interesting work showing that hypertrophy is very similar with like, you know, 30 reps versus the classic hypertrophy range, as long as you push those 30 reps to failure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and that, that's kind of a different sort of a whole a, different a ballgame, right? Uh, it's a tangent, but. Um, but yeah, as far as how many times you hit a given muscle group per week, what's ideal, the uninteresting, the, uh, you know, the unsexy answer to that is kind of 
doesn't really matter whether you mm -hmm. hit a muscle group once a week, twice a week, three times a week, hit it a little every day. Um, what matters is the, um, the total sets by the end of the week, if you're shooting for muscle hypertrophy. Now, the little caveat I wanna throw in here, Lauren, is uh, the more advanced you get and the higher set volume that's required to drive towards your goals, then the more important it becomes to maybe break up your, your sessions, that, that the number of times that you hit a muscle group. So for example, if you're all the way at 20 sets per muscle group per week, it can be more productive to break it up into two sessions that you're hitting that muscle group for 10 sets for the week versus just saving it all for a single day where you're hitting it with 20 sets and the final sets of your workout are not as energetic or, or productive as they would have been if you split it up into twice a week for training that, that muscle group. So, and that's why a training split such as an alternating upper and lower body type of thing that's taken four days a week is so effective and uh, for, for so many, so many different people and people do different splits as well, like a push pull legs taken, you know, <laughs> twice a week, or they just do a full body three times a week. That's great. It's fine. So yeah, we can, we can we talk about this for days. No, I love it. This is so incredibly helpful. And I think the biggest question I want to ask you is why should women who are trying to lose body fat, why should they strength train? I preach this all the time, but we got to hear it from the man, the myth, the legend, Alan Ayrbaugh. Why should women strength train while they're trying to shed body fat? Strength training while losing body fat is, is crucial. I, I mean, it, it's a non-negotiable. Mm, and and <laughs> yes, yes, I, I couldn't be more emphatic about that point. And that's because while you're losing body fat, a major objective is to keep your lean body mass or, and some people will lose a certain amount of lean body mass safely that they were carrying while they were substantially heavier. And that that's fine. Um, however, you don't want to just progressively lose lean body mass as th throughout the entire time you're losing body fat. Mm -hmm. And that's because you can look at your lean body mass and specifically your muscle tissue as your metabolic machinery or the metabolic engine there. And so if you are losing muscle while you're losing body fat, then you're losing the capacity to uh, maintain your resting metabolic rate. You're losing your capacity to maintain strength. And within muscle, you've got this, um, like I said, this sort of metabolic engine of the body. And it's the preservation of muscle that gives your, sends your body the signal that, okay, we're, we're good. We're not losing the battle to survive this diet. In fact, there is a, there's a hypothesis called collateral fattening. Actually, you can actually look it up in, in PubMed, the collateral fattening hypothesis where, uh, individuals who lose a lot of body weight, uh, but they also lose a lot of lean body mass, they end up um, actually hungrier at the end of the rainbow because the body wants to gain that lean body mass back just for, for survival, just for basic survival. And so um, this phenomenon of collateral fattening where you're, you're extremely hungry at the end of the dieting rainbow, it does not happen to as dramatic a degree when you preserve your lean body mass. 
um, at the end of the dieting rainbow. So the body doesn't sense that survival is severely threatened. The body doesn't sense that, hey, we need to gain back all this muscle that we lost. So therefore the appetite is through the roof. So those are some of the reasons why it's so important to keep your lean body mass while you lose body fat. And the whole objective of controlling appetite through the diet, you want to be able to eat the most amount of calories that will still allow progress in weight loss. And that will still allow you to maintain weight loss. You want to maximize the amount of energy intake requirements that that involves. And the opposite of that would be to strive to eat as little as possible and still stay functioning and conscious, you know? So, um, so (laughs) yeah, it's just super important to, to try to preserve your muscle tissue and and your lean body mass in general while you're losing body fat. Cause you know, now there there's the aesthetic side of it, as well as the functional side of it, as well as the appetite side of it. And what Alan is referring to, ladies, is what all of you guys say, which is skinny fat, which I know is not the politically correct term that we like to use, right? But when when you lose a lot of muscle mass, you're not going to have that not scientific word that we love to use, toned. Um, you're not going to feel that tone toned thing. You're not going to feel like you have muscle mass and you shed body fat un- underneath it all. Um, when it comes to strength training and preserving muscle mass, why does strength training help women preserve their muscle mass? Like without being too sciencey. For women that are like, okay, but I understand why protein, you know, preserves our lean body mass and the protein turnover. Like what about strength training just so magical paired with that high protein diet for preserving muscle mass during a deficit? Yeah. You have to give your body a reason to, to hang on to to muscle tissue and grow muscle tissue because it's muscle tissue is in quotes expensive to keep on. It costs a lot in terms of calories. It is the Chanel of body fluids, <laughs> body mass, right? <laughs> it is the Chanel purse of our body composition where, you, you know, other, other things might be cheaper. <laughs> you bet. You bet. It, it, that's, that's exactly right. It's the Louis Vuitton of, of your muscle tissue. Yes. Oh, I love so. it. <laughs> that needs to be a post out. you got to post that. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's metabolically expensive as we, we call it, muscle tissue. And, um, the way that resistance training or, or weight training and lifting, it gives your body a reason to adapt. So if you think of the body as this sort of adaptive survival unit, um, your body it has to survive what you put it through. And the way that it does that is it adapts and it makes changes and it, and it morphs into um, whatever structure and function that you're imposing upon it. And so what weight training does, it it just signals to your body, Hey, I got to get stronger to survive this routine here. And so it does. And it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing. And it it is a win-win with, um, resistance training and with protein. So protein provides the raw materials or the bricks or the building blocks to make sure that the, the muscle growth and maintenance happens and resistance training provides the workers that, that put the, uh, the bricks together. I love it. Now let's segue into protein, you know? I think I have literally the best analogy for protein with the timing of the total daily versus, you know, the care about post-workout. I love talking about that nutrition pyramid of priorities. We've talked about that on the podcast before. Talk to us a little bit about protein timing and like what's most important in what order, because I think women get this all wrong. We are obsessing over seeing the guy with the protein shake at the gym, immediately getting in that protein post-workout, but then we're eating like 50 grams of protein during the day and it's not doing shit for us. Um, So talk to us. 
knows about protein timing and like what we should focus on in what order. Okay. There is a hierarchy of importance as far as protein intake goes. So at the top tier of importance that matters most way more than anything else with protein is the total amount you consume for the day. So all other things about protein, they take a backseat to the total amount per day. Yeah, you, you can argue that, okay, protein quality matters as well, okay? But at the top tier, we've got total amount of protein. And so at the second tier of importance is the distribution or the pattern of, of, of the dosing through the course of the day that you consume protein. So top tier, total amount. Second tier below that is the distribution of protein doses through the day. And then at the bottom tier is the, the timing of those protein doses relative to the training bout. So that is of just tertiary importance and people just obsess over, gosh, you know, whole industry you <laughs> Oh yeah. There's a whole industry based on that. And, you know, we just have piles and piles of studies showing that what truly matters most is, is the total by the end of the day. And then depending on what your goal is, then the distribution of that through the day, whether you have it in one, <laughs> one massive dose or whether you have it in four, you know, more, more, more even and metered doses, that's a kind of a goal dependent thing, but it's still kind of nitpicking because the person who eats their protein intake for the day in three meals versus the person who's eating their total protein intake over the course of six meals, let's say the same amount in that comparison. Yeah. We don't truly, truly know whether it makes a dang bit of difference mm. for, <laughs> for muscle yeah. growth, for muscle growth, for fat loss. We know it doesn't make a, a darn bit of difference. Yeah. So fat what loss is, is a different goal. Yeah. Now my mind's just going because when clients ask me and, or like, say, I think of intermittent fasting, right? Like if someone's having one big AF meal a day, and I mean, I just think that's really hard to hit a protein target for a lot of people. Let's be real. <laughs> but say at that meal, you're eating like a hundred or 120 grams of protein. Like you are packing on that protein, but you have one meal per day. How does that impact your goals of trying to lose fat and maintain muscle? Like, do you think okay. that is advantageous, Alan? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, okay. This question gets a little bit into, into the weeds. Yeah. It gets a little yeah. into the weeds. So I'm going to try not to confuse it, which is hard. <laughs> um, so if somebody eats all of their protein in one shot, if that, okay, number one, there's, there's practical limits to that. There's digestive tolerance and discomfort limits to that. Oh yeah. Talk so about with, bloating. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with, with most people, they, they, it won't be a sustainable thing. There's just a very tiny uh, fraction of people who prefer that. Mm -hmm. But um, the goals for which protein distribution matters most is, is the goal of muscle growth. So maintaining your muscle um, lose, and losing body fat, protein frequency and dosing and distribution, all that, it really doesn't make a difference. So you can go with total personal preference. If somebody likes to eat their, their hundred grams of protein per day in two fifty gram meals through the they day, and you can do it. If, if your goal is maintaining muscle or, or if your goal is fat loss, um, and the goal, or if you just have just regular, casual, non-extreme goals, you can go as low as, you know, two and hypothetically one meal a day, uh, for protein intake. 
Now, if your goal is muscle growth, if your primary goal is muscle growth and you are not a total beginner, a total noob, if you're intermediate and you're kind of marching down your, your, your journey and you've been training a while and um, you want to begin to push the envelope with muscle growth, then you're not going to be optimizing the growth response with one or two protein dosings a day. Because every time you, you eat a protein rich meal, then you raise what we call muscle protein synthesis, or, or you incur the, in quotes, the anabolic response. And so if you have one or two instances in the day where you maximize muscle protein synthesis, it's not going to be the same in terms of cumulative growth as if you did that, let's say three, four times a day or more. So that's kind of the nuance that I'm hoping to kind of convey. If you have goals of muscle growth, then a higher frequency of um, spiking muscle protein synthesis through protein rich meals through the day is more conducive to muscle growth than doing it just once or twice in the day. Absolutely. So if, if for fat loss and stuff, it can, that kind of doesn't matter. If you have um, pressing goals of the primary goal of gaining muscle, then you would want to have at least three times a day where, where you're having a, a, a protein rich meal. And I wrote a paper with, with Brad um, not too long ago where we hypothesized that the dose of protein per day um, and the amount of doses per day would be 0. 0.4 uh, to 0.6 grams per kilo of body weight would be the, the per meal protein dose that would maximize the, the anabolic response per meal. I love and that. then you would want to have that four times a day or, or more. If you, if that's your goal, if your, if your main goal is to, uh, gain muscle. And then of course, having those doses would equal by the end of the day, a total protein intake of 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, which translates to 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight. And we always try to um, remind folks that, you know, we're talking about not necessarily your current body weight, if you're trying to maintain, unless you're trying to maintain, but we try to set protein based on target body weight or, or goal body weight. So 0.7 to 1.0 grams of target body weight would be sort of the sweet spot for total daily protein dosing and the distribution from, you know, for the goal of muscle growth. If you could have at least four meals a day that go 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, then, then you're, you're, you know, you're probably doing everything we know to drive muscle growth. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm chuckling to myself over here when I talk about like protein intake on TikTok, which by the way, Alan, you have to get on TikTok after this. Um, everyone's like, why in kilograms? Like why talk about kilograms? Because everyone, I feel like bro science people always talk about yeah, it in yeah. pounds. Um, so it's very refreshing hearing gram per kilogram of body weight. But anyway, oh, yeah. I digress. Um, thinking of, you know, we're talking about muscle growth for someone yeah. who is trying to shed body fat, they're in a calorie deficit or trying to be in a calorie deficit, let's be real. Um, sometimes it can be hard for some people. And um, we want to preserve our lean body mass and we are strength training, or you know, for some people too, if they're beginners, they might see a little bit of that. They're gaining a little bit while mm -hmm. shedding body fat, which was a, a whole nuanced piece of top conversation too. Um, but thinking through their protein needs, what is that range? Is that different than the range you just gave us regarding muscle growth? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I would say that um, 
we, we kind of have to look at the different populations here because the general population who is not necessarily involved in athletics. Um, and we're talking that, intense training, like many people listening to this show, where we have some people that are like the CrossFitters, the very intense exercisers, going to the gym, doing tons of strength training, where there also are a lot of people listening here that are getting into strength training and they're doing like resistance-based body weight stuff where you know, those protein needs are going to vastly differ than what you just described with like putting on a lot of lean body mass. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And so that general population who has more casual goals, they'll do fine with 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So that's technically, if we were to convert that to pounds, that's 0.54 to 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight. And I always say per pound of target body weight because people on the extreme ends of overweight and underweight, they, you know, they're not necessarily going to be hitting the target there. So like if you're um, wanting to lose hundred pounds, we don't want to do it off of your current weight current, right. from like the perspective of someone calculating it. That's right. That's right. And so, so yeah, that would be um, 0.54 to 0.7 grams of protein per pound of target body weight in more of the general population. So uh, um, if we're applying your question to the more athletic population uh, who has um, higher, higher demands just because of, of their, their training programs and the, the physiological demands placed on the body, then we're looking at the, the same range for muscle growth. So, so 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, which translates to 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound target body weight. So, I love that. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's so funny. I call myself a protein pusher and I often say 1.2 to like two grams, just because I know people come into coaching at different kinds of places, but I think yeah. you've just created, you, you are now the protein pusher and I am not because you're saying even more than what I usually recommend um, for people <laughs> definitely on that higher spectrum of like, maybe you're in maintenance mode right now and you're really trying to put on some lean mass where those needs are very different. And I think for listeners where, you know, you're thinking of your goals as you're listening to this, you know, you have to understand how much nuance there is to creating a nutrition plan and exercise plan. It depends on your goals. It depends on your starting body weight. It depends on how much muscle mass you have right now. And this is the shit the internet doesn't talk about. This is the shit that if it fits your macros as like the diet fad on the internet, not what Alan's talking about and what really it should have been, but you know, this is where it goes wrong because we don't really assess the person. We just go on the plan without actually understanding who's that person that is going on that plan. Yep. It's all about the, what, what's the population, what's the goal and what are the stakes? Alan, you are the best. Thank you so much for being on. You have a new book coming out. Tell us about everything with this book, where we can find it. Um, Cause I'm very excited to read it. I want to read it. Oh man. Well, <laughs> first of all, Thank you so much, Lauren. It, it really is an honor to get invited onto this show. I, I do have a book that's going to drop on June 7th. And it's a book that I just tried to put everything into. I, I don't imagine myself getting book deals all the time. <laughs> you know, it's like, a, <laughs> you do. <laughs> we so, need more uh, of it, Alan. The world needs more of it. Thank you. Thank you. So I just kind of put everything in, into this book and as far as what you need to know to improve body composition and uh, improve athletic performance. And, and so that's, that's kind of what the book is about. And it's called flexible dieting, but the title is misleading because it, it it's basically evidence-based nutrition for 
body composition and athletic performance. And it, it's got a section on there about flexible dieting. <laughs> so Look at you book- smart with your marketing because flexible dieting, I'm like, that's such a sexy title. And then yeah. whenever we put the word evidence-based, it's like, okay, only a professional is going to buy it. But it sounds, like it, it sounds like this book is for someone who maybe doesn't have like a nutrition or exercise science degree. Like it's, it's for anyone, correct? Yes, yes, yes. I, I tried to write it for the masses. I really, really, really tried. But there's a kind of a running joke where I say, the, the phrase and colleagues, like every other sentence in the book, you know, Phillips and colleagues, Schoenfeld and colleagues. It's like, oh my God, the book should have been called and colleagues. So, <laughs> but it's a team, like, like we are all maybe doing different things, especially in like your research world, like you collaborate so much with other people. So it's, it's funny, like this whole field and space is an and colleagues situation because it's not just one person, right? Like it's, taking all of the literature and kind of putting it into one really digestible place. That's a great point. And science is a community effort. It's not one lab producing data and everybody just kind of worshiping that lab and those findings. And yeah, to find my stuff, my book, um, you can just go to alanaragon.com and uh, everything's there. The, The link to my book and link to my research review is there as well. Yes. And I am a member of the research review lady. So pop right in. You'll see me. <laughs> That's uh, love, love to hear it. Thank you so much. I love it. Thank you, Alan. Mm-hmm.